the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, coming at you on 860 AM, The Answer. We are an iHeart station, so you can reach us on your smartphone, 9 to 10 AM Eastern Standard Time. You can go to the website, too, anywhere in the world, am860theanswer.com, am 860theanswer.com. Click listen live, 9 to 10 a.m. every Sunday morning. Put on your little headset, plug it into your computer, and there you go. Or here I am. So we're going to do a radio show this morning. Oh, boy. I'm going to get away from politics for a little bit. I'm kind of worn out. We were talking about it before the show, and I'm just I'm amazed at... The rhetoric coming out of the left wing, oh my gosh, they want to kill Trump, they want to try him for treason, this is just ridiculous, and as far as I can tell, no crimes have been committed, you know, you can talk to who you want to before the election, but uh, that seems to be the way it's going for them, and it's almost supercilious, it's just ridiculous, it's hardly worth even mentioning, but it's just so incredulous, the Rhetoric is unbelievable. So let's get back to some medical topic. And I want to preface this with uh, that I was recently involved in a, in a case where a person died from a clot that was thrown from their legs or their pelvis into their lungs through the veins. And they ended up succumbing to this. And it's a little bit uh, disquieting. It's not very often that death will stop me and make me think or look back on and try and retrospect to see if there was something more that could have been done or to look at the family and and look at my own sympathies for them so i was affected it's it's not easy it only happens every five or ten years that i have a case where i am this pulled back into it you know i've grown accustomed to death it's part of being in critical care medicine And I'm dealing with largely an elderly population, so, you know, we're expected to die at some point. And a lot of my patients have chronic problems, heart disease, lung problems, bad emphysema. Uh, Of course, cancers are more common as we get older. And although we're getting much better at treating cancers, various types, we still succumb to a lot of these diseases. And add to that our 
our lifestyle and our genetic predisposition to obesity and for the women prior pregnancies that kind of takes wear and tear on the body. So we have age-related problems like cancer and, and veins that are stretched because of pressure in the pelvis from pregnancies or surgeries, high blood pressure, diabetes, all the different diseases that we think of as coming mainly as we get older. And most deaths are expected. I mean, you know, we're aging. People have terminal illnesses. Or they've had major trauma and you don't expect them to recover. Or if they do, they're going to be significantly uh, disabled. But occasionally, as I said, a death will stop me. I had a kid about, and I say a kid in early to mid-20s, this was about 10, 12 years ago. And he was in his first year at Stetson University Law School. Nice young kid. He came in with belly pain, nausea, vomiting. We thought, well, maybe he's got a hot gallbladder. That's in the right upper quadrant of your belly, right under your rib cage. there. The gallbladder is the little bag that holds the bile that's produced by the liver, and then it's released when we eat. And so we did the whole workup on him, and we ended up having to do a biopsy because we saw something inside the gallbladder, a mass, and it came back as a type of cancer called cholangiocarcinoma, which just means a cancer of the gallbladder itself. These are rare cancers, and at that time, and I don't know, perhaps still now, they're not treatable, and they usually attack younger people, and it was just devastating. I mean, this young guy was just as nice as he could be and uh, raised in a good family, religious, uh, went with his family to church every Sunday, straight-A student in college, in law school now, and he said, Doc... I've never had a drink. I've never smoked a cigarette or a joint. I've never been with a woman. And now you tell me I'm going to die within weeks? And that was a tough one. The father couldn't handle it. He would not go in and talk to his son. And I sat down with him two or three times, and I said, you don't have to say anything. I don't know what to say. I said, you don't have to say anything. You just go in there and hold his hand and let him know that you're with him. He just couldn't do it. But the mother turned out to be real stellar, and she she uh, was very good with her son. But, boy, that tugged at my heartstrings to see that young fellow go. And that happens every once in a while in my trade, in my business. Well, this woman that, that I was involved with recently, she had had major surgery. She'd had low back surgery. And you say, well, I wouldn't let anybody touch my low back. And I can understand that there have been a lot of problems postoperatively with low back surgery with lumbar disc disease. Although in good hands, uh, there are better outcomes than there were 10 or 20 years ago. And you say, well, what if you're predisposed to having problems? What if you're much older or you're really heavy and obese uh, or you've had blood clots before? You've had some other processes that will make disease processes that will make this kind of surgery even riskier. And I say, I agree with you. You know, there are people, though, who are in so much pain that they will do anything. They will try anything, and if, if nothing else works, they'll say, well, look, either fix it or I want to die. And if I die from the surgery, well, that's just okay with me. And I understand that as a guy who has migraine headaches when I've got a bad headache, 
if you could cure me of my migraines, I'd be more than happy to give you my arm. You can take whichever one you want. And I think that that drives some people who are high risk for surgery. That is, they'll have complications afterwards like blood clots or heart attacks to do things that normally you and I would not consider doing. If the doctor told me that to fix my low back would put me at risk of dying, I had a 50-50 chance of making it from fixing my back, I'd say, you know what, I'll just lay down and suffer. But if it gets bad enough, you take the shot, you take the risk. Well, this patient was very, very heavy, had a lot of medical problems pre-existing, and she came in and had the low back surgery, and it was a little bit of a stormy post-operative course. She had a hard time getting out of bed. You know, she was weighing in at about 350 pounds, but a nice lady and uh, communicative and talkative in her late 60s. And I, uh, you know, I liked her, and I was happy to take care of her. And I tried to work with her and her family in any way that they wanted me to. We finally got her to the point where she could be discharged to the rehabilitation center. And she came back a day or two later with a massive blood clot that had lodged in one of the arteries of her lungs. And, of course, this is a, a, a life-threatening situation. And we have about 50,000 people a year, 50,000, 60,000, I would say, that have blood clots thrown to their lung. Those are the ones we diagnose. Obviously, there's a, a bunch that don't get diagnosed. We're constantly, you and I, all of us, we're constantly forming little itty-bitty clots inside of our body. But we have a mechanism whereby we break those back down. We have chemicals and cells that form clots, and then we have chemicals and cells that break down clots. And that's part of the system. And the idea is that you're always on the alert. You're always on the offensive uh, in case there is a break in a blood vessel or a cut in the skin or a tear in the belly or an ulcer that's bleeding so that in some way we have a mechanism whereby we can quickly clot that off and plug it up. You know, the little, little Dutch boy sticking his thumb in the dike, and that's necessary. And, of course, once the clot is done its deed, done what it has to do, then we try to break it down. That's That's the body's way of dealing with it. That's the mechanism. Occasionally, these clots become larger, or they find a little spot inside a blood vessel where they can hang on and grow. And that's usually what happens when we throw a blood clot to the lung. We have a blood clot form in the veins in our legs or in our pelvis, less commonly in our arms or our upper body. Most of these come from the lower body, and you say, well, why is that? Well, if you think about it, when you stand up, we've got this tremendous natural force that's pulling everything down. It's called gravity. And so the blood will tend to fall into the pelvis and legs when we stand up, especially if the veins in the pelvis and the veins in the legs have been uh, stretched with time, uh, with gravity, with pregnancies, with prior surgeries especially surgeries in the pelvic area. And so the women are, are more at risk because they usually have more surgery in the pelvic area than the men do. And we can also look at different diseases that can predispose us to blood clots or certain cancers that will predispose us to blood clots. Now, this is on the 
venous side, the veins. The veins bring the blood that's already been deoxygenated and all the food stuff taken out of it. They bring that blood back to the heart so it can be pumped out to the lungs. And so there you go. You have a natural conduit between the veins of the lower extremities and the veins in the pelvis into the lung field. And you and I are throwing microscopic clots all the time, but they're being broken down. The lung is a great filter. The lung will filter out almost everything. Once in a blue moon, you'll see a person who has a hole in their heart between the right side of their heart and the left side of their heart, and a clot can slip through there. We call that a paradoxical embolism or a paradoxical clot. But 99.9% of the time, there's no communication between the left and right sides of the heart except the common hookup with the lungs. And as the lung vessels divide and smaller and smaller and smaller, they get down to the size of maybe one red blood cell. And they, it has to be that way so that the oxygen and the carbon dioxide and the food and the waste and everything can flow back and forth between the thin membranes, the thin cell wall structures of the small blood vessels that the red blood cells have to work their way through. And so clots almost of any size are going to be filtered out. Air is going to be filtered out. So the idea that you can shoot somebody full of air and kill them is a little bit of a myth. If you shoot air into the vein, you're probably just going to have a big hunk of air in one of the arteries in your lung and that'll break down fairly quickly, so it's not going to do any real damage. But a blood clot, if it's big enough, it can plug up a major blood vessel that feeds blood from the right side of the heart, the blood that needs to come through the lungs and get rid of the carbon dioxide and pick up oxygen, get foodstuffs, and do the things that it's supposed to do, which is carry this stuff back to the body, to the cells in the body through the left side of the heart. The veins from the lungs come back into the left side of the heart after they've picked up oxygen and gotten rid of carbon dioxide and done all the other things that they're, they're supposed to do. So the pulmonary embolism is a big deal, especially in somebody who's had major surgery like back surgery or pelvic surgery or has had abdominal surgery, has had a colon cancer that's been taken out, part of their colon has been resected or they've had a twist in their small intestines and that area has died and the surgeons have to go in and take out a little piece of the small intestines and hook it back up. Plus, if you have colon cancer, you're at an increased risk for developing blood clots because of some of the biochemistry of the cancer cells. So it's a, a multifaceted phenomena And we have to be eternally vigilant for these things. Now, some of the orthopedic, the bone doctors, the back doctors, they will give the patients some blood thinners as part of their postoperative regimen. And I don't know the literature on that. I can't tell you how well that helps or doesn't help and whether or not there are complications from that because you've just cut into somebody's back. And so you're 
going to be at an increased risk of bleeding from that wound and from the bones and the disc being worked on. You know, you're going to chunk out the disc with some sharp instruments and maybe cut away some of the bone that's overgrown into the nerves and into the spinal cord. And, of course, bones are bloody, so there's an increased risk of bleeding. Yes, we do have things we can put onto the raw bone, the denuded bone, to help stop the bleeding. And, yes, we do have some new medications and biochemistry that we can use to decrease the risk of bleeding from a wound. But that risk still exists just because of the dynamics of cutting somebody open and putting them in strange positions and then having them in bed postoperatively and have blood pooling in their pelvis and in their legs. And when you throw in age and time and gravity, uh, children, prior surgeries, well, those veins in the pelvis and in the legs can be stretched. And they can be permanently stretched so that they're enlarged, so they're even less capable, even less competent at getting the blood back to the heart from the lower part of the body. And the leg veins even have little valves in them, one-way valves, kind of like a a step ladder, you know, you've seen the salmon that are going up the step ladders on the side of the stream, a similar kind of situation where the veins will open up in one direction, but in the other direction, they will not. And so the blood moves upstream that way, gets a little help, passive help from the, from the valves. But if you stretch the veins enough, the valves don't stretch. So all of a sudden you have valves that aren't touching each other. And so the blood's not moving efficiently up the ladder, up the tree, back into the right side of the heart to be sent to the lungs, and clots can form. And if you get a big enough one and it breaks off and it goes sailing into the lung, you can block off one of the major arteries to the lungs. And that's not good because guess what? That's how we breathe is through our lungs. We got to get rid of the, the carbon dioxide and pick up the oxygen. Uh, the dynamics of the blood flow are changed as well. There's increased blood pressure because the rest of the arteries in the lungs get upset and they don't know what to do. So they're trying to help out a mate. So they all squeeze down. And so the blood pressure in the lungs goes up. The right side of the heart has a hard time pumping into the lung field because the blood vessels have squeezed tight and they don't want to let any blood in because they're afraid of something else coming in. Another clot. And then we end up with an immediate and acute right away high blood pressure in the lungs that we didn't have before. And the right heart can't handle that. Now, if it, if it has time, you know, if you smoke all your life and you've, you're getting emphysema and that starts to crowd some of the blood vessels, some of the scar tissue, then the heart has a chance, the right heart over time, to adjust to this. But if you throw something at it in one big lump acutely, as we say, right now, then the right heart can't adjust to that. And so it starts to fail. And as it fails, blood backs up into the venous system, the veins, 
and that can be transferred all the way down into the legs as well as into the belly. The liver can become congested with fluid. We get swelling in our legs. And if we've already got some predisposition to problems with the veins, we may already have swelling in the, le- in the legs, so then they get bigger. And then you have the potential for more clots forming, so it's, it's a vicious cycle. And it's not just surgical trauma. People who have had heart failure or heart attacks, the flow dynamics of the heart may have changed, and they may be at increased risk for forming clots on the vein, on the venous side and the veins. And there are people who have predisposition to blood clots because of biochemistry, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. We can also see it in people who have had trauma, especially people who have had major trauma and maybe they're immobilized for weeks or months. We can see it in legs that have been broken that are immobilized with with a cast, and we try to avoid that now. And in the hospital, when we have people come in, we do specific things to keep blood from pooling in their legs. We either give them a blood thinner if they're capable of handling that, or we put on these these uh, compression devices that we call them. They look like great big blood pressure cuffs that are enlarged, so they will fit over our calves, our lower legs, and we hook them up to a machine that squeezes and relaxes. It's an air-driven pump, and it squeezes and relaxes. It blows up and it goes down, and that helps milk the blood out of the calves and the legs and move it up into the body back to the central system. So we keep the blood mixed that way and decrease the formation of clots and increase the ability of the body to break down clots, and that's important. That's important. And if a person can handle it, we'll give them a blood thinner, something like heparin or Coumadin. Um, We've got newer drugs than heparin now, but in the same family, that block the formation of the the fibrous clotting matrix that acts as a scaffolding for little microscopic cells to hang on to and plug up a hole. It's like bridge work, you know, it's uh, like building a dam. First, you've got to put in the rebar. Then you pour the concrete. And so we have that mechanism, and we can block that with certain kinds of medications. Or we can block the little cells that like to stick to everything and form the plug. We can stop them from sticking together with different kinds of medications. And we use these in small doses in people in the hospital if they're capable of taking them, if they're not bleeding, if they have had no problems with these medications, they're not allergic to them. And so it's a good way to prevent clots. And if they do have problems with these, If there's a contraindication to taking these, if they've just had surgery or if they have a predisposition to bleeding or they've got an ulcer in their stomach that's bleeding, then we can use mechanical devices like these these pumps that we call sequential, sequential compression devices. And they squeeze, they blow up and relax and blow up and relax. And so in sequence, they push blood back up and keep the legs from forming clots, and that's how we do it. So what happened in this situation? 
I mean, look, we've got 50,000 people a year that we know of dying of, of blood clots like this, and there may be another 650, 750,000, probably more, probably over a million people a year have blood clots thrown to their lungs. Now, we diagnose 650 to 700,000 nationally, but there's probably double that who have small clots, and they don't think anything of it. They just think, oh, got a little pain in my chest or a little short of breath, or they don't have anything. They don't feel anything. And those are broken down quickly over time. And that makes it not a big deal for most of us. As I said, most of us form itty-bitty clots, and they're thrown into the lungs, but they're quickly broken down. We all have that happening. So this 50,000, how do we prevent blood clots and deaths from the blood clots once they do form? Well, if you have somebody who has not had surgery, who doesn't have a predisposition to bleeding, they haven't had any stomach bleeding, they don't have any ulcers, they haven't had any recent injuries, then we can use certain types of medication depending upon how serious it is. Now, if it's a minor uh, blockage of an artery in the lung and we think that they're going to be fine over a short period of time, then we'll just give them anticoagulants. We'll give them things to block further clots from forming. And the body will break that down on its own. Now, if it's a major clot and it's threatening their life, uh, they're having heart rhythm disturbances, their oxygen levels are falling precipitously, they're struggling for breath, then we can give major clot busters, which have the risk of breaking down any other clot in the body that is formed. So if you've had a recent cut and there's still a scar forming, not a scar, but a scab forming, I'm sorry, then it can break down that blood clot in that cut and you can start bleeding from there again. Or if, wherever we stick people to put an IV line in, they will bleed when we give them these major clot busters. Now, these don't last very long. They are a day or two and they're out of your system. But they can be life-saving. Well, what if we can't give that? What if it's somebody who is post-op and they've had major surgery? It's just been a few weeks. What can we do? Well, we do have catheters, little flexible tubes now that we can put into the veins and thread them up through the right heart and out into the lungs, and we can actually capture the clot, suck it out, clean it out, and that can be life-saving. But you have to be a candidate for all these things. And if you've just had major back surgery, you're not a candidate for a clot buster. And you have to be in the right setting. You have to be in a hospital that has that kind of uh, equipment. It's a special x-ray room where catheterizations of the blood vessels in the heart can be done. You have to have people that are trained in it, radiologists or cardiologists who specialize in what we call interventional procedures. They intervene when there's a major problem. And you have to have somebody that can do that and it has to be readily available. And the patient also has to be a, a, a good candidate because doctors are loath to work on somebody when they know that the chance of death is 
uh, 80%, you know, they're going to say, look, they're not going to make it no matter what I do. So I don't want to put them through this. And that does happen. And then there are times when you think everything's okay. You've got the person in the hospital. You've got them on the blood thinning medicine. They're looking a little bit better. And physical therapy comes around and gets them out of bed and walks them around. And all of a sudden they're in distress. And you're like, oh my God, what happened? Oxygen saturations have dropped precipitously. Have they thrown another clot? Possibly. Their heart rate goes up. Have they had a heart attack? That can happen too, especially in the older population. As I was saying earlier, it's important to consider all the risk factors before we do major surgery. But again, some people say, look, I don't care if I die. I am miserable. I want this fixed if possible. And so I want you to do what you can do. And if it doesn't work, well, no harm done because I've tried everything. And if I die, well, that's okay too. I won't be in pain anymore. Of course, the families don't like that. And so we have people who all of a sudden get back in bed after being out of bed with the physical therapist, and they're in distress. And that's what happened with this patient of mine. I'm making rounds, and I walk in the room, and she's struggling. And I start yelling for the nurses to, you know, get a get a 100% non-rebreather mask. Let's get ready to intubate. And by the time we got all the team together and another one of the doctors came in and started kibitzing, and, of course, that always slows things down when, when you got one guy in charge and then all of a sudden there's two guys in charge. But everybody's there. Well, it ended up she just crashed, lost her heart beat, nothing, no respiratory rate. No respiratory drive. And so I intubated her. I put a tube into her airway through her mouth, and we started CPR. We all know what that is. Try to resuscitate somebody. And we worked for 30 or 40 minutes, and we never, ever got anything back. And this was a person who was sitting there talking to me the day before. And so you look back at that, and the family was upset, and I don't blame them. And you say, what could we have done different? And so you dissect it. And you talk with the other doctors that were involved. And you try to reconcile and and tell yourself that this happens occasionally, which it does. But that doesn't always help. Sometimes you have to get to the point where you just say, well, I have to accept that I'm not God. I can't do everything. And we did the best job we knew how to do at the time. Well, when I come back, I'll tell you some of the other problems and diseases that can predispose a person to a blood clot. I'm Dr. Bill. I'll be right back. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. Going to have to put off a vote in the Senate on the Republican plan to repeal and replace Obamacare. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says he will delay consideration because Senator John McCain of Arizona, an expected yay vote, 
has undergone surgery to remove a blood clot above his left eye. It's not a big deal, but he'll need a week to rest, and they need his vote. So the vote, for the moment, is off. Republicans having some troubles, but Democrats have yet to unify behind a clear core message that will help them take advantage of their opponents' challenges. That's what political analysts are saying. Eight months after Democrats hit rock bottom, party leaders still struggling to tell voters what the party stands for. Venezuelan opposition calling for massive turnout today. It's a symbolic rejection of President Nicolas Maduro's plans to consolidate his power by rewriting the Constitution later this month. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full-service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Dr. Bill for West Coast Radiology. Our good friends at West Coast Radiology offer convenient and comprehensive x-ray diagnostics, including open MRI, CT scan, CT PET mammography, and ultrasound. With state-of-the-art equipment and four convenient locations, you're assured of friendly, comprehensive care. Most insurance is accepted and competitive self-pay rates, plus Saturday appointments. Call West Coast Radiology at 727-771-2795. That's 727-771-2795. I'm Trina Webster. And I'm Dan Webster, founders of Z-Quiet. Let me be honest, I snored. Yeah, he did. Crazy loud. I was forced to sleep on the couch most nights. Dan tried everything, including surgery, to solve his snoring problem. Nothing worked. So we turned to experts and created a solution that's a total game changer, a mouthpiece called Z-Quiet. Not just any mouthpiece, one that gently opens the airway where the snoring happens. In fact, it's based on the same technology as treatments costing thousands of dollars. It allows natural jaw movement so you can talk, breathe normally, and best of all, sleep comfortably without making a sound. And what's really cool is that it couldn't be easier. Just pop it in before you go to sleep to kick snoring out of bed. So you can sleep quiet with Z-Quiet. Z-Quiet fits both men and women. Try it risk-free for 30 days for just $9.95. Go to GetZQuiet.com or text SNORE to 91011. Go to GetZQuiet.com or text SNORE to 91011. In 1967, Arab forces attempted to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Six days later, Israel had triumphed. Honor the 50-year anniversary of this historic triumph by joining Mike Gallagher and Dennis Prager for Stand With Israel, a nine-day odyssey celebrating Israel's past, present, and future. October 22nd through November 1st includes luxury accommodations and safe transportation. Stand with Israel. For information and reservations, visit StandWithIsraelTour.com. Today will be partly cloudy with a thunderstorm in the area this afternoon, high 92. Patchy clouds this evening, low 77. Then tomorrow, partly cloudy with a thunderstorm in spots in the afternoon and a high of 91. Clouds and sunshine on Tuesday, thunderstorm in parts of the area in the afternoon and a high of 90. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Gigi Getz for AM860 The Answer. Every year, we had it, and everyone from miles around came in for it.
And I'm back. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD. A little bit of ultramarine, electronic, electronica music. Oh, boy. Every man and every woman is a star. I like all kinds of music. Opera, jazz, folk, rock and roll, Broadway shows. I, I don't like, I've never been able to develop a taste for country and western. Everything else I'll listen to. So that's a little bit different, but a little bit something to help you on your Sunday. Get up and get moving. We're talking about blood clots and clots thrown to the lungs, pulmonary embolism. Talking about a patient that I was involved with recently. And I wanted to go over some of the risk factors for forming blood clots. And how do you feel when you do have one? How do you know if you're having a blood clot? Almost all these blood clots come from the legs or from the pelvic area, the blood vessels in the pelvis. And the pelvis is filled with the bladder and the genitalia organs, internal organs in women, the uterus. The pelvis also has the, I shouldn't say this, kind of a silly pun, but the, the tail end of the large bowel. So you have the sigmoid colon and the rectum, your little pooper. Now, the blood supply to the colon and the rectum is not the same as the blood supply to the bladder and, and the uterus and uh, the muscles in the pelvis because that comes off of the large bowel and the large bowel. Uh, it develops embryologically when we're in an embryo and when we're a fetus, it develops from the blood supply of the rest of the large bowel and it works its way down. So we have big veins in the legs, and we all have had varicose veins or know somebody who has, so we can see how a vein can become enlarged, dilated, stretched, and we can imagine that in the deeper veins of the legs and in the pelvis before these veins come back into the superior or inferior vena cava. The cava is the main vein or venous flow channel from the body back to the heart, the right side of the heart. And so almost all these clots come from the lower body because of gravity and trauma and prior surgery and pregnancies and aging and big prostates and all the other things that we get as we grow. There can be other sources of blood clots from trauma, like if you break or crush the bones in your legs, you can have fatty emboli because there's fat in the bone bone marrow, and this can be thrown to the lungs. Women can have amniotic fluid when they're delivering a baby, get into their venous, their blood system, and this can form a type of embolism or clot-like phenomena that goes to the lungs and can block off an artery. Major operations, again, especially orthopedic surgery like hip, knee, back, belly, and pelvic surgery can predispose us to forming clots and having those break off and sail into our lungs. And you can also see it, and this is not uncommon. I see this in people who have traveled uh, a long time coming down from Canada or the northeastern United States in a car or people who have been on an airplane flight, transatlantic or transpacific, 
and I've talked about this before, and when you do head out on a long trip where you think you're going to be sitting for extended periods of time, take an extra aspirin, put on your support hose if you have any, get up and move around as much as you can, or you can just do bicycle pedaling in your seat, in the airplane, or in the car. Make those muscles squeeze because they'll help milk blood back out of the legs into the main circulation. There's also some diseases that we inherit, some biochemical and autoimmune diseases that can lead to clots or predispose us to clots. We know that some women, when they take estrogen hormones, like for birth control or after they've gone through the menopause, that the estrogens can increase the risk of blood clotting. We know that pregnancy can do it. We know that there are biochemical conditions in the body that we inherit. Fancy things like factor V Leiden or prothrombin mutations, protein C or S deficiency, homocysteine, which is a, an amino acid, a small protein building block that can be out of whack. We can have things like antiphospholipid antibody syndromes where we make antibodies to certain chemicals in our body that then form complexes that become a good spot for the little platelets to hang on to and form a clot. And as I said in a show last year or two ago, I can't remember when, I'm pretty sure that that's what Hillary Clinton has. She has the antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, and this is why she's had blood clots and little strokes, uh, probably only had one child because she was having spontaneous miscarriages from her disease, and this is not uncommon with this disease. So there are things we can inherit that predispose us to this. We can have kidney diseases that can predispose us to this. We can have an inherited disorder called paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. What's that mean? That means when we lay down with this disease, because of genetics, red blood cells are broken down, and there's also other things that happen in the bloodstream that predispose us to forming clots. We know certain cancers will do this. We know that certain cancers like uh, bowel cancers can predispose us to forming clots. So even if you've gotten rid of the cancer, you may still have some of these antibodies running around in the body that are looking to kill something, but there are no more tumor cells, and so they attack the tissue lining the blood vessels or uh, other parts of the body, and this forms a spot for the little platelet cells to stick to and start a clot. Well, how do you know if you have a clot? Well, if you're at high risk, if you've had previous clots or you have any of these diseases or you've recently had surgery or you've had a lot of pregnancies and you're getting swollen legs all the time and uh, you're, you've had trauma, uh, like the, the congressman who was shot in the pelvis, he'll be at increased risk now because that disrupted the normal blood flow through his pelvis from his lower extremities. So he'll probably be on some kind of blood thinner the rest of his life. So if you have a predisposition or you have congestive heart failure, you've got a bad heart, you've had prior heart attacks or strokes, or you're obese, that will increase your risk. Why? Because the big fat panis in the belly 
will fall down into the pelvis, and that'll compress the veins as they're coming back from the legs and from the pelvis into the main venous circulation. So what do you feel? Well, you're predisposed, so you're concerned. You get anxious. Well, the anxiety may not be because you're concerned about the blood clot. You may be anxious because your body's kicking out a lot of adrenaline because you've already thrown the clot. Heart palpitations or skipped heartbeats, sudden onset of unexplained shortness of breath, again, fast or irregular heart rate, cough, and you're not sick, you don't have a cold, you don't have a fever, your nose isn't running, and all of a sudden you just start coughing. A type of chest pain we call pleuritic. It's a sharp pain. It's usually made worse when we breathe in and out. It can be localized to the left or the right chest. And the doctors have to differentiate this between pain coming from our heart, angina or angina, depending on what part of the country you're from, or whether this is coming from the lining of the lungs. And we can have pleuritic pain without having a blood clot. We can have a viral infection that irritates the lining of our lungs. We can have a little leakage of blood into the area around our lungs, and this can be very irritating and cause pleuritic chest pain. Now, with a blood clot, we can also start coughing up blood because as these clots form and the tissue downstream from it doesn't have enough oxygen and cells begin to die, you can get little breakdowns in the, in the little air sacs and in the little blood vessels, and blood can seep out, and you can start coughing up blood. What do the doctors look for? Well, they'll listen to our chest and see if we have any abnormal sounds, listen to our heart. We can look at an EKG, and sometimes this will help us make the diagnosis. We can get an ultrasound if we think it's the heart, and we can see the right side of the heart when it's been acutely, suddenly forced to pump against a greater pressure head. It will change. It will look different. Now, if the clots are big enough, we can be in shock. We can be so short of breath and so low on oxygen in our body that we have to be intubated. Our blood pressure can drop. Our EKG can show the right side of the heart is, is overly stressed. And so there's a number of things that will show up, especially as it gets worse. How do we make the diagnosis? Our two major modalities are to get a CAT scan. How does that work? A CAT scan is a continuous x-ray scan of a portion of the body that the computer then puts together the picture and gives us a, an unbelievably accurate view of the parts of the body that we're looking at, if it's amenable to that kind of x-ray. And fortunately, the lungs are. We can squirt a little x-ray dye into your vein, shoot you through the scanner, and we can see the outline of your whole blood vessel tree in your lungs. And we can see if there's a blockage because there won't be any dye, any of the x-ray dye going through that area. How does the x-ray dye work? Well, it's got iodine in it. Iodine is a, is a light metal, but iodine will block x-rays. So we can see the difference between the areas where the x-rays get through and the areas where they don't get through. So the iodine will block the x-rays, and that will show up 
differently than the surrounding tissue. So we can see the differential between the two tissues or the two areas. And that's a really good way to do it. Now, some people can't take the dye or some people are, are uh, afraid of it or uh, some people would rather have the other test for whatever reason. And we can do that unless it's an emergency or your life and death kind of situation. And we can do what we call a lung scan. What's a lung scan? Well, we use a radioactive isotope that will admit a little radiation, microscopic, minute amounts, and we shoot that into your vein, and we get a, a, a picture of your lungs. We take a big camera. We call it a gamma camera, and that will register the radiation coming out of your chest, and there'll be differences in the amount of radiation coming out of different parts of your chest depending upon whether or not there's blood flow there or there's a clot blocking that area, and the radioisotope flows with the blood into those areas. And if there's a blockage and there's no radiation coming out of that area, it'll show up on the x-ray. And again, the computer helps put together a picture for us. That's another way we can do it. We call those ventilation perfusion scans because we not only inject you, perfuse, but we also ventilate you and look so we get radioactive material in a gas and we have you inhale that and then we take another scan with the with the gamma camera and that way we can see if there's any areas that maybe you have some emphysema and you've got some breakdown in the little air sacs and you've just got dead space there and if we only had the perfusion scan we would say well look there's no radioisotope there's no uptake in this area that must be a blood clot. But if we see the ventilation scan and we can see that you have some damaged areas in your lungs where no air is getting in and therefore no blood is going there, then we can say, oh, no, that's not a, that's not a blood clot. That's part of the patient's emphysema or they have pneumonia. So there's different things we can do. So we have those two main modalities. Well, what if you don't want any imaging done and you're not that sick and you just want to know, hey, have I had a blood clot or is there something wrong with me? We can do a blood test called a D-dimer. D as in dog dimer, D-I-M-E-R. How does that work? Well, anytime we form a significant amount of clots in the body and start to break them down, we get breakdown products from those clots. And so we can measure this one specific breakdown product, and that will tell us whether or not you've had a recent clot that's being broken down. When can we use this? If you haven't had any other problems like recent surgery or recent trauma where the D-dimer, the, the breakdown products of clots are going to be high anyway because you just had something traumatic happen to you and your body's doing its normal thing of clotting and then breaking down the clots after everything's sealed up again. You know, they put up the scaffolding, do the work, and then the workmen take the scaffolding down. Well, they can be put up and down not only for a blood clot in your legs or your lungs, but also for surgery. <laughs> or you were playing rugby last week and you took a big hit and you got a big bruise now. Those kinds of things can give us a positive D-dimer test. Okay, so your leg's swollen. You recently had trauma, so the D-dimer is no good. You're not that sick. You don't want to have x-rays. You don't want to have radiation in your body, although it's so small. It's, it's, it's infinitesimally negligible amounts. 
people still worry about it. That's okay. I understand that. We can do an ultrasound. That's just a sound wave picture of your leg and see if there's a blood clot in one of the big deep veins of the leg. And that's another way we can do it. So we have a number of modalities we can use to diagnose. And again, the treatment is simple, but not easy. We can give you a blood clot, acute blood buster, clot buster medication, and squirt that into your vein, or we can even thread a little catheter, a little hollow tube out into your lung arteries, and we can squirt it right right where the clot is, and the idea being that maybe you don't need as much of the clot-busting medication, which is a big gun medicine, because if you have an itty-bitty bleed in your head or you've had any kind of recent trauma or surgery, all that can start bleeding again, and that's not good when you have a bleed in your head because there's no room for expansion in the head. The brain is surrounded by this hard shell, and there's nowhere for anything to go. It's entrapped, encased in concrete, so to speak. So we have to do that with great caution and great forethought. Now, if you have to have something done because you're, you're dying, uh, if we can get you onto the table uh, and the radiation uh, in the x-ray room and we can get in there with a catheter, we can suck the clot out. And that can be life-saving. There's some newer mechanisms that we can use now, too. We have some high-frequency sound waves that we can use at the end of a little catheter. And we can actually break the clot apart into much smaller clots so the body can more easily handle that and break it down. That's a new technique. It's not being done everywhere, but it'll shortly become a standard of care for major problems like this. And... If it's not that serious, we can put you on blood thinners, either by injection or through the IV, or we can give you blood thinners by mouth. We have all kinds of modalities that we can use in different medications and drugs. So it is treatable. It is treatable. <clears throat> and unfortunately, it's not always treatable. You know, we lose 50,000, 60,000 people a year from blood clots thrown to the lungs. And uh, as with this patient that I was involved with, it's a sad situation and you feel bad and you wonder if you could have done more, but it's very complicated because of low back surgery, predisposing problems. She'd had a heart attack in the past, so her pump wasn't working that well. She was very obese, so there was a lot of predisposition to forming clots anyway, and the surgeon and I talked and and we both said, yeah, I mean, there are times when people will do anything to get out of pain. Therapy hasn't worked. Narcotics haven't worked. Chiropractors haven't worked. Nothing has worked. Injections haven't worked. And so it's a tough problem. Looks like we're getting close to the end of the show here, buddy boy. So I guess we better start to sign off. And it's been great being with you guys this week. Are you there, Bill? You there? What do we got, 30 seconds left? All right, so I'm going to do it right. So, yes, occasionally I do get upset about losing a patient. Most of the time, no. But every five or ten years, it's a big deal. And I have to look back and I have to take into account all that I have done and what I could have done different, if anything. 
And I have to sometimes just accept that there's nothing I could do. And that's the way it is. And that's part of life is acceptance. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. See you guys next week. And here we go, 5, 10, 25, 50, 75, now $1,000, $2,000, $25,000, it's auction. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.